3: History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual. So when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say 25 years being really distracted overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get, folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless Googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com Persia. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com Persia. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. This is episode 21, The Faith of the Magi. For some of you, this will be your third week in a row hearing from me. For the rest of you, if you want to get some more podcasting content from yours truly, you can find that over on Patreon. Patreon is the website that allows listeners like you to support online content creators like me and get some small benefits for doing so. That includes monthly bonus episodes, and the first one just went up last week, where I retooled what was going to be the original first episode of the show that I ended up cutting out into a full episode on the Late Bronze Age Collapse. If that's something that interests you, I'll be completely blown away and grateful for anyone who wants to support the podcast. Anyway, back to the topic at hand. That title has to be up there as one of the most clickbaity titles I've ever used though now that I'm looking at it, that's sort of what I've been doing every other episode for a while now. Oh well, let's just hope it works. Don't get me wrong, I'll totally be talking about the religious beliefs of the Magi today, but that's hardly the only thing up for discussion. Last time, I discussed the internal policies of King Bardia, or Gomata, or Smerdis or whatever. With that, I wrapped up the story of not just Bardia, but also the male line of Cyrus the Great and the so-called taspid period of Persian history, with Darius' assassination of the reigning king in 522. Darius, of course, went on to become king and labeled the deceased ruler an imposter while promulgating a story about Cambyses killing his brother and a corrupt priest posing in Bardia's place, a story made infinitely more complicated by the plethora of Greek accounts of the same events. Given this break between kings and Gamata's description as a Magos priest by Darius, it seemed like an appropriate time to step aside and revisit religious developments in the Persian Empire, as they stood during the reign of Darius. And I've got to be honest with you, I've sort of been dreading this episode. Not because I dislike the subject, quite the opposite, religious history is what got me into Persia in the first place, It's just that the religion of ancient Iran is a fairly thorny subject to talk about in a public setting like this. It's caught up in the usual secular scholarship versus believers' theology conflict of any religion, but also voracious attempts to link it or disconnect it from Judaism and Christianity, various pro- and anti-Iran takes, both within and without the Islamic Republic, the divisive heritage of a non-Islamic religion in the nationalism of Iran as a theocracy, the status of Zoroastrianism as a minority religion worldwide, and of course, between different factional beliefs within Zoroastrianism itself. I now feel like I need to reiterate some of the ground rules. I am, in this regard, a secular scholar and an outsider looking in. Those are the positions I'm taking and the positions I'm stuck with. I also feel like I need to emphasize that I'm a historian, focusing on the historical development of this religion in pretty small stages. I'm not trying to explain a ton of theology here. I am by no means a Zoroastrian theologian, and it would be a fruitless effort if I did try as a historian because we just don't know much about the theology in the Achaemenid Empire, an issue which I will be elaborating on very soon. Again, I just feel like that all needs to be clear before I can really get into this, so sorry for a bit of a rant, and on to the show. The last time I talked about religion was back in episode 12, and then I mostly covered the pre-Persian development of the Zoroastrian religion. I discussed its core elements, the belief in Ahura Mazda as a supreme creator god, his opposition by the corrupting spirit called Angra Mainyu, and the importance of Asha, cosmic order over Druj, the force of chaos. I also discussed the Avestan language hymns and prayers that eventually formed the corpus we know as the Avesta. The fact that the earliest components of the Avesta, the Gathas, were composed by the prophet Zoroaster, more accurately known as Zarathustra, just under 1,000 years before the rise of the Persian Empire, and the elements of other sacred texts, particularly the younger Avestan compilation of hymns known as the Yashts, and how they praised a variety of divinities below Ahura Mazda called the Yazadas. I closed that episode by shrugging my shoulders and saying that we didn't know what Cyrus, Cambyses, and Bardia believed, but we can really start talking about the beliefs of the Persians themselves now because Darius starts giving us some information about his beliefs, starting with the very first old Persian inscription at Behistun, where he names Ahura Mazda no less than seventy-four times. At minimum, we can say that Darius worshipped Ahura Mazda, and in fact, Uhura Mazda is the only deity mentioned by Darius in any inscription from his entire reign. At first, that seems like a pretty big point for anyone who wants to argue for strict monotheism. However, that argument will start to fall apart pretty quickly. Other deities and ceremonies associated with several Yazada are mentioned in the Persepolis fortification archive, and there is firm evidence for other Iranian Yazada being worshipped by the Persians both before and after Darius. So something more is happening here. That's why we have to establish the different religious factions playing a role in Persia at the time. A conservative count would say there were two. Those two would be the Zoroastrian Persians, and everyone else worshipping their ancestral gods, with the largest number being Elamites, since Persia and Elam were mostly the same place. But a more extreme count would say that there were five, and the more realistic option would say three or four. In any case, we can be certain that there were non-Persians worshipping their own gods according to their own traditions in Persia. Obviously, Elamite tradition persisted in the old area of Elam, but we also have evidence of Mesopotamian temples in Iran, and can probably assume that any Greeks, Jews, Egyptians, or anyone else maintained their beliefs while spending time in Persia. We can also be fairly sure that the Magi, who I introduced in detail last episode, were identifiable Zoroastrian priests, insomuch that any Zoroastrian elements can be identified at the time. Greek accounts and Persian artwork show them participating in burial by exposure, which is extolled in the Avesta, partaking in rituals before a sacred flame, and treating natural elements considered sacred in the Avestan tradition with reverence. The Magi are often portrayed as covering their mouths in the presence of a sacred fire, a practice recommended by the Avesta to avoid ritual contamination of the flames. Despite this, both administrative texts like the Persepolis tablets and accounts from the Greek world discussing the Persian people at large make it abundantly clear that not all Persians kept so strictly to the religion espoused by Zoroaster in his Gathas. There were temples dedicated to various Yazada, notably Mithra and Ahita, Manga and Tistria. Several Greek authors also noted the Persian people embalmed and buried their dead in the dirt rather than exposing them to wild animals and nature first. That was in blatant opposition to Zoroastrian tradition, that would have been considered a decaying body to be a pollutant in the soil. The explanation for this disparity is found in the gradual spread of religion. Zoroaster launched his reforms far to the east, around modern Tajikistan or Afghanistan, and by the late 6th century BCE, those reforms may have reached the Median priests called the Magi, but had not disseminated down into the ordinary Persian people, who were still following the pre-Zoroaster polytheistic Iranian traditions of their ancestors. Probably because of that difference, the fourth religious category is that of the Persian kings themselves. We know the magi both maintained Avestan traditions and served in the court of Darius and his successors. So the kings would have been aware of the quote-unquote right way of doing things. Despite this, there is lots of evidence that the royal family wasn't exactly orthodox. Though Ahura Mazda was always the preeminent deity, later kings would openly praise other divinities, Mithra and Anahita especially, suggesting that Zoroastrian influence was either diminishing or the need to put up a more monochromatic appearance in public had faded. They were always happy to sponsor temples, sacrifices, and festivals to other gods. Very noticeably, a horse sacrifice often associated with Mithra was regularly carried out at the tomb of Cyrus all the way through Achaemenid times. Animal sacrifices in general are something that the Gothas eschew, according to some interpretations, and Cyrus's tomb is also an example of royal heterodoxy. Unlike the Magi, the kings were embalmed and placed in tombs rather than exposed. Clearly, this was a display of royal power, and various reasons that this was okay with Ahura Mazda have been proposed over the years. Like the stone of the tomb protecting the sacred elements, or the kings getting special treatment because they were already Ahura Mazda's favorites. However, that doesn't change the fact that their tombs are explicitly non-Zoroastrian traditions. The kings were also always willing and able to take up the roles mandated to them by various foreign religions under their rule. Whether that was taking the stage as the actual god Horus in Egypt, renewing Babylon's relationship with Marduk, or rebuilding the temple to Yahweh in Jerusalem, the king of Persia was religiously flexible. That's hardly the character of somebody following a strict, monotheistic religious orthodoxy. But exactly what you would expect from kings who favored pragmatism over doctrine. It would seem that the king chose to exist somewhere between the religion of the Magi in his court and his subjects, for either personal or practical reasons, who can say? The more conspiracy-minded scholars out there have occasionally proposed a fifth group, on the grounds that the Magi participated in the festivals of other yazadas and officiated animal sacrifices on behalf of the kings and nobility. This, some say, is proof that the Magi only adopted Zoroastrian traditions in a superficial sense when missionaries came from the East. From then on, the Magi actually corrupted Zoroastrian belief with the worship of the Yazadas as other gods, sacrifices, and festivals. This would mean that there were also proper Zoroastrians as the fifth group in this growing religious milieu. For my part, I think that the last one is a little bit too much tinfoil hat to be taken seriously, but maybe that's because I've never really bought into the strict monotheism interpretation of the Gathas. They exist to focus on the supremacy of Ahura Mazda, but they don't seem to shy away from other beings worthy of veneration. They're just not the primary topic. We don't really have any evidence for the earliest beliefs outside of the Gathas and their supplements, the Yasna, so we don't know a whole lot about their implementation up to the Achaemenid period. Regardless, all of those different elements may help explain why Darius and his son Xerxes never mention gods other than Ahura Mazda explicitly. Just about everyone could agree that Ahura Mazda was the supreme god over all others, regardless of how they understood all the others in cosmological sense. And so, praising him exclusively meant that nobody would question Darius' choice of gods. However... It does seem likely that Zoroastrianism in western Iran may have adapted and become somewhat less rigid in response to the largely polytheistic Persian common people. It would hardly be the only time that popular belief led to a change in religious dogma. A contributing factor may be the complexity of the Gathas. Zoroaster's hymns are really some dense and heady reading. They're hard to understand with a commentary sometimes, let alone just on their own, especially in a if you speak another language, like Old Persian or Aramaic, for instance. It would be much easier for the average person to follow a pantheon of Yazadas associated with parts of the natural world and recognize Ahura Mazda as the authority over the Yazada than understand some conception of different emanations from the godhead fulfilling different roles on Mazda's behalf, while also simultaneously being part of Ahura Mazda. See? complicated. The Zoroastrian and mazda Yasna, that is Mazda-worshipping, corpus of knowledge, was still developing at this point. The Gathas and their supplements composed in old Avestan were probably pretty firm, but still being passed on orally at this point. And the younger Avestan texts, like the Yashts, were still developing and being codified. Some of the Yashts, poems praising Ahura Mazda and his subordinate Yazadas, were probably fully formed, while others may not have been truly set in stone until the tail end of Achaemenid power. Because these poems were composed so late and are primarily about Yazadas, their gradual development also supports the idea of a more polytheistic outlook on Achaemenid Mazda worship. Crucially, the younger Avestan work called the Vitavdat, or the Vendidad, was not fully formed yet. In fact, the Vendidad was not fully formed for several centuries after Achaemenid rule. That piece serves as a religious manual detailing religious purification practices and describing proper behavior for the faithful. As this was not yet fully formed, it should not surprise us when it is contradicted in one way or another by the religious practices of the Achaemenids. One last controversy, and possibly the one that presents the biggest hurdle to firmly calling the Persians, or at least the kings and magi, Zoroastrians, is the utter lack of reference to Zoroaster himself. For a religion where the prophet is so central to its development and beliefs, you might expect that he'd be mentioned explicitly by the Achaemenids, but you'd have no luck. However, Zoroaster was clearly not unknown in the ancient Persian world, because by the 5th century BC, the Greek philosopher known as Plato knew about Zoroaster as an impossibly ancient Persian sage. So, Zoroaster had to be known to the Persians, known to the Persians near Greece, and then be known in Greece long enough for the exact details to be garbled when they got to Plato. So, Zoroaster wasn't unknown, but he did go unmentioned. Were the Persian kings trying to obscure the ancient prophet and his religion as some more critical scholars have suggested? Probably not. Old Persian royal inscriptions are highly formulaic and drew on pre-existing formulas from Elam and Mesopotamia. Odds are that since there was just no formula for talking about a sacred prophet, Zoroaster wasn't talked about in those inscriptions, and any more free-form papyrus documents have long since been lost. The royal inscriptions weren't about religion, but were only using religious concepts as proof of divine right to rule. The prophet wasn't really crucial to that particular area. Despite all of that controversy over who exactly believed what precisely, we still know significantly more about the religious practices of the Mazda Yasna, or probably even Zoroastrian magi, and the kings in participation with that side of things. They are the figures most clearly associated with religious practice in Achaemenid art, the ones who had to be present for religious functions mentioned in the Persepolis tablets, and the ones who the Greeks developed a strong curiosity for. And so it is for the Magi and the kings that we have the best evidence. There's very little about Achaemenid-era Zoroastrian theology described in the historical record, It's not the sort of thing that the royal proclamations and administrative records in Persia were concerned with, and Greek authors tend to be more concerned with what the Persians were actually doing in terms of rituals and rites than why they were doing it. That said, we can tentatively extrapolate a few beliefs from the old Avestan Yasna hymns and older parts of the Yashts and compare them to concepts that are directly addressed in the historical record. Some things are obvious— like the supremacy of Ahura Mazda over all other gods. Others require more extrapolation. One pair of concepts that is clearly represented are the ideas of Asha, or Arta, and Druj, or Droga, Asha is the right. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the U.S., I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership all 25 languages for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. is cosmic order of the universe... It's the way that things are supposed to be under Ahura Mazda. Very often, it is translated as the truth. That isn't incorrect, but might lack the cosmic importance given by the word Asha. Druj is the opposite, the force of chaos and corruption that causes evil in the universe. Druj is often translated as the lie in opposition to Asha's truth. Darius in particular used the divine concept of druge to describe those who opposed him, describing rebellion as the spread of the druge in the land. The Greek sources regularly discuss the Persian significance of the truth, most notably when Herodotus describes the Persians as taught to only ever speak the truth. The interpretation of what Asha really means is often misconstrued, but the reference is usually very clear. Much like the dichotomy of Asha and Druj, we also have clear Greek references to Ahura Mazda and his divine antagonist, Engramenu. In Avestan Times, Engramenu is described as the evil spirit who corrupts not just other divinities and mankind, but also the sacred elements that make up the rest of the world itself. Engramenu is the divine agent of the lie incarnate. He is the root cause of violence, falsehoods, disease, and death. The Greeks best understood Manu as analogous with their Hades, god of the dead, while Mazda was compared to Zeus, the king of their gods. Ironically, the ancient comparison with Hades is actually closer to the modern interpretation of Hades as evil due to our own comparisons between the god of the underworld and the Christian Satan. In reality, Hades was considered a much more neutral god in ancient Greece than Engramenu is in Zoroastrianism. In addition to Engramenu and Ahura Mazda, we also have clear Achaemenid evidence for belief in the Yazadas and Devas. How exactly the Yazadas were conceived is unclear. Obviously, there were good divinities, and at least some were worshipped for their own sake, but we can't tell exactly how subordinate they were to Ahura Mazda just that they were in some way. We can use the yashts that were composed around this time to say that part of their role was to support asha on behalf of Ahura Mazda and act as a sort of bulwark against the druge and the spirits that brought it into the world. The Achaemenid conception of deva is clearer and much closer to the deva described in the Gathas than the more demonic entities described in post-Achaemenid religious texts. The Deva seem to have been the gods not fit for worship by the Iranians. What gods that meant exactly isn't very clear. Darius mentions punishing Deva worshippers in the context of the Elamites, and Xerxes mentions it without specifying a place. The idea of Persian kings punishing their subjects for worshipping the wrong gods is at odds with the more numerous examples of religious tolerance. Some scholars think they found the loophole, though. They suggest that the Persian kings tolerated foreigners with foreign gods, but maybe not Iranians with the wrong gods. If you were culturally similar enough to the Persians to be considered Arya, then you better follow the proper Iranian religion. Apparently to Darius, this also included the Elamites, who would have shared lots of culture with Persia despite not being linguistically connected we can also use these various dualistic categories of spirits and concepts to establish a cosmology, a way that these ancient Zoroastrians like the Magi might have viewed the universe as a whole. You can sort of divide the Zoroastrian view of the universe into four quadrants. If you picture a circle divided into four equal parts, the upper parts represent the abstract world, the realm of spiritual beings and cosmic forces like Ahura Mazda, Angra Mainyu, the Yazada, and the Devas. Meanwhile, the lower two sections represent our physical world, inhabited by tangible people, creatures, and objects. In the same circle now, the two sections on the left can be understood as the parts of the cosmos that are good, those things that align with the Asha. That's Ahura Mazda and people and elements in the physical world that are pure and follow Mazda and his Yazadas. Meanwhile, The two sections on the right side of the circle align with evil, corrupted by the Druj and Engermenu. Honing in on the physical world, we have evidence for two concepts. The first is the creation of the world. Now, in the Avestan tradition, there are lots of creation stories and stories about the early days of the universe, and one day I'll get into those a little bit more, I hope. But we don't have a ton of evidence for that within the Achaemenid period. What we do have is an inscription from Darius's tomb called the DNA inscription by scholars. The opening lines, as translated by Professor prods aktor Skervo, read, Uhura Mazda is the great god who set in place this earth, who set in place yonder sky, who set in place man, who set in place happiness for man, who made Darius king, one king over many, one commander over many. I am Darius, the great king, king of kings, king of lands of many kinds, king over this earth, son of Vishtaspa, and a descendant of Hakamanish. Now, that's a pretty rough and undetailed creation story, but it does start to set up ideas that we should be more familiar with, like Uhura Mazda as a creator, but a creator especially of the good things in the world. Uhura Mazda created happiness, but it's not mentioned that he created anything negative. And an emphasis on the creation of the natural world. He created the earth, he created the sky. And we also see elements of the royal theology of divine right kingship. Darius has been chosen by Ahura Mazda to be the king and set in charge of this great empire. Darius didn't take it over. Darius was made king by God. That might be the more political side of theology, but it's an important part and a very prominent part nonetheless. And for those wondering, when he says he's a descendant of Hakamanish, that is translated in Greek as Achaemenes, and that's where we get our Achaemenid from. Related to that idea of divine right kingship, we also have evidence for the Persian kings expanding on an idea already found in the Gothas. This is the idea that Iran, all the lands inhabited by the Arya people, are the perfect lands and located at the center of the physical world. In the Gothas, of course, Zoroaster was referring to his own homeland on the central Eurasian steppe lands, But it didn't take much for a king like Darius to shift that concept westward to the Iranian plateau and declare that his own Iranian homeland was Ahura Mazda's chosen territory at the center of creation, and thus created a perfect explanation for why Persia had the right to rule over this vast empire. Not only were their kings chosen by the supreme god of the universe, but their homeland was as well, and it was very convenient, I guess, that their homeland actually did sit more or less at the center of the empire. The idea of shifting the ideals of the Gothas out of the steppe and onto the plateau is seen in another place too. The Gothas present nomadic pastoralist lifestyles of herdsmen with his cattle on the steppe as the perfect life. But by the time the Yashs were coming into being, you see a new idea being espoused. He who sows the seeds is sowing Asha. That means by or during the Achaemenid period, Zoroastrian belief was shifting away from its pastoralist roots and developing new beliefs to fit a more settled and agrarian lifestyle, while still maintaining the importance of how its followers lived day to day in their lives. From there, the more philosophical ideas about Druj and Asha and the perfect placement of the Iranian peoples in that cosmic order has to give way to discussion of what the Achaemenids were actually doing in practice around these beliefs. We rarely, if ever, know exactly what the meaning behind certain practices was. But one belief with attached practices that we are fairly certain about is the belief that certain elements in the world were of sacred importance and could be polluted if not properly cared for. The Avesta indicates seven sacred components— Soil, stone, plants, animals, water, fire, and humanity. But it isn't clear if or how the Achaemenids and the Magi cared for all of them. But soil, water, and fire are all fairly apparent. The greatest pollutant of all things is dead human matter or bodily fluids. Precautions against this for the soil are most clearly seen in burial practices of the Magi. As I discussed earlier, the Magi and a few other Persian families would take the bodies of the deceased to a barren place and leave them exposed to the elements and scavengers like dogs and vultures. Only after the bones were stripped bare and dry could they be collected and buried without polluting the soil they were buried in with their own decay. It has been suggested that the royalty and nobles may have practiced their own system to protect the soil. With royal Persian tombs that are uniformly carved from stone and elevated above ground level, it has been suggested that this was a way to create monumental tombs while still defending the soil from rot and decay. However, proper disposal of the dead wasn't the only way to purify the soil. In keeping with that shift to a more agrarian worldview, the Yashts encouraged their followers to irrigate desolate land and drain swamps and marshes. That means turning useless and therefore polluted land into arable farmland, which was now pure. Herodotus describes how the Persians were especially reverent toward running water as well, and how they would avoid contaminating it, not just with corpses, but no blood, no urine or defecation, not even spitting or washing filthy hands in natural water sources, all in the name of ritual purity. And then there is fire. This was and is the ultimate component of the natural order of things in some senses— Fire was sacred above all else as the literal purifying force of Asha in the world. Cremation was obviously a big no-no, as would be anything that you weren't allowed to put in the water, but it was even taboo to extinguish a fire yourself rather than letting it burn out on its own accord. Some fires were also considered sacred, and were given special altars where they were kept burning at all times. Eventually, those altars developed into temples where sacrifices were performed, leading outsiders like the Greeks to erroneously think that the Persians were worshipping the fire itself. The Greeks, who built monumental temples for all of their gods, could possibly be forgiven for thinking that, when those fires seemed to have their own temples, and most of the significant gods like Ahura Mazda and Mithra did not. Instead, the Magi are often described as going up to mountaintops and conducting their ceremonies there under the open air. From these descriptions and general lack of Achaemenid fire altars away from royal palaces, it seems the early Achaemenids practiced their religion without official temples. Their offerings and worship were conducted in the traditional way of the ancient steppe, outside at sacred sites in nature. It's probably only at Cyrus's death that we start to see anything different. Plinths for sacred fires were constructed outside of Cyrus the Great's tomb, and records from the Persepolis archives indicate that there was a monthly horse sacrifice there. By the time Darius and his successors were in power, they had taken to building permanent fire altars, if not proper temples, near their palaces. This is probably another example of the king's foregoing religious orthodoxy in exchange for a display of political strength that their neighbors could understand. Impressive temples were a hallmark of other Near Eastern powers, and the Achaemenids wanted to replicate that in their own ways. Also confusing to the Greeks, but never copied by the early Achaemenid kings, was early Zoroastrianism's apparent iconoclasm. They did not make idols or images of their gods to direct their worship at. Praise and sacrifices seem to have been made before a sacred fire or other altar with no physical representation of Ahura Mazda or the other Yazadas at this point. When images do appear in the record that may be mistaken for the representation of a god, it's always in a context where scholars can and do dispute that interpretation. That brings me to how exactly worship was carried out. First and probably most familiar to modern audiences were prayers. The Gothists prescribed four set prayers for Zoroastrians to use. Today, they are traditionally repeated at different stages of the day, but in Achaemenid times, we have no real idea how or why they would be used. We know from several Greek sources that the Magi officiating a religious ceremony would repeat standard chants, which are probably these or other similar prayers. That just leaves figuring out what exactly these ceremonies were. Two categories very familiar with the Greeks and other surrounding peoples near the Persians were libations and blood sacrifices. It's debatable whether these p- were permitted or condemned in the Gothas, but it is clear that the Achaemenid-era Magi decided that they were permitted. Libations are when a liquid, usually wine, is ritually poured out and seem to have been a key component to honoring the water. Wine, apparently, was not considered a pollutant because it would be ritually poured out into the water by the king or the Magi as an act of reverence. In less ornate or expensive ceremonies... Libations could also include water or milk poured out over an additional sacrifice. Elamite texts from the Persepolis archives describe a ceremony called the lan, which we don't have a full understanding of. In this ceremony, foodstuffs were presented as an offering. That could be of livestock, but also something like dates or wine, and what exactly happened to it from there isn't clear. Livestock would presumably be slaughtered, but it's hard to tell if something happened to the food or if it was functionally a gift to the Magi. There's also blood sacrifice, which sounds way more gruesome than it actually is. This is just any religious offering where an animal is specially slaughtered for the occasion. I've mentioned the highly significant and expensive horse sacrifices outside of Cyrus's tomb a few times, but this could also be cattle or other livestock that were killed and blessed by the Magi, before being cooked and served to the lay people, much like how sacrifices were carried out by cults all over the Near East in Greece. The final sort of foodstuff ceremony is the Homa ceremony. This is the ceremony I discussed in episode 12, where a plant, thought to originally have been ephedra, was crushed up and mixed with milk to create a ritual drink that had an enlightening or intoxicating effect on the priests who drank it. This is actually one of the best attested rituals in Achaemenid times because we have found over 20 mortar and pestle sets at Persepolis with variations of the word hawan or homa engraved on them, and a seal showing one in use at a fire altar. The modern Persian word for a mortar is havanim, and that is cognate with the ancient word homa. Finally, that brings me to the role of the magi themselves. I've pretty thoroughly referenced their role as priests over the course of this episode, and in the last two episodes I discussed their roles as advisors to the royal court. But what about their roles within their own order? Famously, in Greek and Roman literature, they were portrayed as dream interpreters and astrologers able to predict the future and foresee natural events. That the Magi eventually started practicing those skills isn't an unreasonable assumption, As priests, they were the learned class of Iranians and probably found themselves in contact with the Babylonian scholars who attempted to do those things through astronomy and astrology. If Persian magi eventually took up Babylonian sciences, it would make plenty of sense. The Greek word magike, the root of our word magic, also stems from the magi. Evidently, they were also thought to be sorcerers of some kind. Interestingly... Other sources say that sorcery came from Babylon and was not native to the Magi, possibly supporting the idea of borrowing sciences and schools of thought like that. But the most significant and enduring rule would probably have been memorizing and composing Avestan hymns. At this point, there was no Avestan script, and no Avestan literature had yet been written down. In fact, Darius implies that no Iranian language had ever been written down prior to the Behistun inscription. Thus, it was up to the Magi to preserve the legacy of Zoroaster's preaching and steadily growing corpus of Avestan thought, all in the form of orally transmitted hymns from generation to generation. It is because of that that we are able to have talked about this at all today. However, that's just about all I've got for now. I'm sort of scraping the little bits of knowledge about Achaemenid beliefs and practices as it is, so next time we move on to Darius's early years in power, dominated by a series of wars and revolts in the eastern part of the empire. Until then, you can find more information on my website, historyofpersiapodcast.com, like maps, the Achaemenid family tree, a selected bibliography, and the show support page. You can also reach out to me on social media or email— I'm the History of Persia podcast on Instagram and Facebook, or just History of Persia on Twitter, and you can email at historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. As always, I really want to encourage everyone out there to share the show around on social media and tell their friends, or leave a review on iTunes or whatever app it is you use to listen to the podcast. That's all for now, and thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.